0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance.
2: You're listening to a podcast from the
0: Word Alexa. Played the Stranglers. Playing songs by the
2: Stranglers
1: from Spotify. <laughs> of course, of course it, it, it is. It had to be Alexa. Stop. Of course it is. Have I, mean,
0: I, mean, I told you the famous story about you know, that Hugh Cornwell told me about Golden Brown? No, go on. I did a thing with Hugh Cornwell a few years ago, and I've, got, I've always got a the theory with bands that when they have they have a number of hits, but actually, when you drill down, it's all one hit. The real value is all in one hit. And I said, is that the case with The Stranglers? He said, oh, yes, Golden Brown. Golden Brown's the one definitely with The Stranglers. And he said that was developed by um, Dave Greenfield, the organist. Um, we just used to jam sound checks around that little riff. And it, it took ages to develop into a song. And when eventually it did develop into the song and they decided to record it, Jean-Jacques Bunnell thought it was so stupid. <laughs> he would.
1: Oh, I well, you know, you've told me this, yeah. He didn't he appear on it He those... didn't play on it, did he? He, he, he wouldn't play
0: on it, <laughs> which, you know, I just think is amazing. What other branch of entertainment are you allowed to say, I don't like this, I'll just go sit aside. But anyway... Wouldn't play on it, um, and of course it turned out to be their biggest hit, and, uh, and apparently you're still credited on it, and still. What well, as a compositional credit? It. Well, whoever it's credited to is apparently spread across the band, and
1: so uh, he's trousering on a he kind derives... of, kind of daily basis a great big well, fat well, check for for something well, uh... never actually participating. That's brilliant, yeah, isn't it? But... Nice work. <laughs>
0: it's... It's a nice work if you can get it. If it's the, it's the only, it's the only game in the world where you can do that. It seems to be
1: okay. i got a, What else do you want to ask Alexa to play? Uh, well, we've had to say, Well, uh, should we try Beyonce? I mean, we could Beyonce just for a okay. of bit, just be a little bit modern. Is it irreplaceable? Is it? I only know a few Beyonce hits. Presumably, it's Crazy in Love, or is it Czech? I would it? have gone Crazy I, in
0: Love. I would have gone for Crazy in Love. Yeah. Surely, okay, cool. Alexa, play Beyonce. Playing songs by Beyoncé from Spotify. Oh no,
1: no, no, See, no, no, that no, doesn't no, no. sound like Crazy in Love to me. It's not. Speaking of Alexa, the world's stop. greatest Beyoncé expert, no,
0: I tell you what that is. That's that's called
1: Halo. Oh, okay. Um, well, Alexa's got it very wrong. It's not cra- yeah, bless her no, cotton yeah. socks.
0: Well, we'll try.
1: We'll try, try Allmans, on one more. Go on, the Olman Brothers. If, she, she, if
0: we say, if we
1: said the Allman Brothers, it'd have to be Jessica, wouldn't it? Surely it would be Jessica. It'd be rambling man. It would be trouble and oh. be straight for Bruce or, or blues. Or could we just shout whipping post, Dave, for old times' sake? I think the old Alexa gag have people, to to people a, at gigs. Alexa shout would have post. to
0: be a, be, a, be a bit hardcore before she'd no, reach for whipping it post. Would probably be Jessica. Go on. Okay. Alexa, play the Allman Brothers band
2: playing
1: songs by the Orman Brothers Band from Spotify. Oh, you're right. Here we go. It's Rambling Man. Well, that's extraordinary. Da, da, da. See, I'm impressed that she's even uh, heard of uh, it.
0: thank you. You've delighted us long enough. Thank you.
2: Sorry, I'm not sure. Oh, <laughs>
1: Did she think you were asking for a song called You've Delighted Us Long Enough? What was (laughs) her confusion? Probably, (laughs) wasn't it? Alexa's still furiously
0: looking for Alexa Leave It, which we have to vote last week.
1: Yeah. Walk away. (laughs) Alexa, it's not worth it. (laughs) Yeah. It's not worth it. Oh god. I I think
0: I've been um, I've been thinking about we ought to hand out lockdown awards for those musicians who are doing doing the most to entertainers. Oh, well, in which during... case,
1: that's a good idea, in which case we should give that award immediately to the, to the couple that you and I have been talking about and sending each other links about, which, is, of course, the mighty Robert Fritt and Toyer. I don't know if well, anyone have this thing been doing has been... doing Explained to fantastic. people. It's fantastic. You know, to, to backtrack very slightly, I remember being on Q magazine in 1986 when um, the, uh, you know, it's a mystery-making flamboyant pop songstress Sawyer... Sawyer? Toya? <laughs> Sawyer? Sawyer! <laughs> married married the Nunmore prog and apparently very serious and intense uh, leader of King Crimson, uh, Robert Fripp. And we had a headline for a piece about it, written by Paul Denoyer, which is one of my favourite headlines ever, which was, Mr Chalk loves Mrs Cheese. Which I thought was <laughs> funny, because we kind of thought they were somehow somehow very incompatible. But you would have got very long odds, I think, if you'd uh, placed a bet. But you know whatever it is, thirty-five years later, they'd still be, uh, they'd be, t- they'd be there in this incredible house that they have, absolutely amazing house, which I think oh, might God. have belonged to Cecil Beaton. I'm not sure if that's the house they still in. They certainly did live in Cecil Beaton's old house, in a village in, uh, in in Dorset, and they're just fantastic. Every Sunday, Toya and Robert Fripp do a thing called lockdown. I think it's a happy lockdown Sunday lunch, and they they kind of, they perform. And the first one was where they uh, they, they danced to Rock Around the Clock in, in the kitchen. Then they dressed up as bees and ran up the <laughs> enormous length of their, what appears to be about 200-foot ornate garden. And with then a they, river at the bottom. With a, a river bit. at the bottom. Then they did Let's Twist Again. I mean, looks fantastic. You kind of, you know, 50s and 60s dresses. And Robert Fripp, Fripp, uh, uh, you know, turns up in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of suit and shirt and tie, and the la- then they did a tango where they kind of exchanged roses, mouth to mouth. Then they did the last one. it was Swan Lake, where you see Robert Fripp. This is the man who gave us 21st century schizoid man, dressed in a tutu, dancing with Toya on the lawn of their house, with with uh, little um, um, unicorns in the background. And uh, it's you've brilliant. got to admit, it's absolutely fantastic. Anyone who's not seen? This, uh, do go you know look what it reminds Twitter's me of? Sawyer. Yeah, go on. It reminds me of
0: Richard Bryars and Felicity Kendall in The Good Life. You know what it'd be mean? Oh yeah. It's the kind that, of thing that yes. they would do they would do, but on a on a rock star budget. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Know, slightly more it's a it's a posh house. And and of course, you can't get away from the fact that when you look at all these clips of rock stars, you know, performing in their houses and their gardens and their kitchens or whatever. of what you're tuning in for... Is to look at their houses, their gardens, their kitchens, their living rooms, isn't it? You know, Which I this think is
1: what we... Toya and Robert Fritz must is... be well aware of because they have. I mean, he's the most sensational oh, pile, isn't it? Place. It looks kind of. I don't envy.
0: I don't envy a lot of rock star piles, but that one I look at.
1: And oh think, my
0: Lord. God, I mean, I used to live in there. When in they that when, place. when
1: they run, dressed as bees up the length of their garden. By the time they get to the top, they're exhausted <laughs> because they. It, it, it's it's a marathon, isn't it? It's it's absolutely. absolutely oh, Fantastic. Yeah, won. Anyway, Robert yeah, Stevens has, has one rock and roll, you were saying the other day. I think that's right. He has. He's, really. won. he's know, won. He's won. He made a lot of money and he's he's just had a, he won, had a great life. He's done what he wanted to on do. On his own terms. Yeah.
0: And he's been really successful at it. And, you know... He's brilliant. Hats off to him. It's brilliant. I, I just throw, throw this in a, a further, kind of runner-up on the lockdown award. I was only looking at it this morning that Cat Stevens is, um, is regularly, you know, playing... And putting stuff on YouTube. And, and there was just him doing The Wind, which is an old song of his. I've seen <clears> that. And he he just sang it absolutely beautifully. Well, he sings and it God, he really looks faithfully, good.
1: doesn't he? He hasn't tried to change it. He hasn't tried to improve it or alter it or modify it. He just does it as you remember it. And really, and as if he's never lost affection for it, which is fantastic. Oh, he's wonderful. He's brilliant. I... And uh, and
0: I, But I couldn't help thinking I wanted to know where he was doing it. Because he's in a, he's in a kind of, what looks like a, a kitchen on yeah. a Mediterranean island. Or That's something. right, with a
1: very nice. Well, have got the drum. back door That's open,
0: right, yeah. you know. I mean, it may not be on a Mediterranean island. It may, I don't know, it could be, be absolutely anywhere. But you can't help speculating. When you look, when you look at this stuff, you know uh, where they're where they're broadcasting from is a you huge want part own. of the value. I interviewed yeah, yeah. him.
1: I remember in uh, in the mid nineties, uh, at one of the extraordinary interviews I ever done at the, at the mosque in Regent's Park, and we had to take a break in the middle, and uh, I had to take my shoes off, and he then uh, you know then uh, prayed uh, to Mecca, <laughs> you know, for a quarter of an hour, and then we went back to talking about uh, early days supporting David Bowie. Very very strange indeed. There's bits of correspondence I to just catch
0: up with um, from listeners or people who either posted stuff on their Word podcast site or wherever. And uh, I don't know if I, I mentioned this before. This is from a while ago. When we were talking about two virgins and, uh, you know, John Lennon and Yoko, oh, yeah, we yeah. said there were certain records that you'd have to be in lockdown for a very, very long time before you listen to. And that was one of them. Well, Alan Knight got in touch and said, on oh, the back of this episode, he listened to Two Virgins all the way through his first experience they help album. First impressions are that it lacks some of the carefree exuberance, please, please me. <laughs> unsurprisingly, <laughs>
1: unsurprisingly, the best bit when Yoko is not singing. I'm <laughs> master of the understatement. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> it is the most avant-garde lunacy. That's, that's that's brilliant. Well, you know what patience the man has to have even you know even entertained the idea of uh, sitting through it. Incredible. Yeah,
0: and I've got I've got uh, further. We were talking about Pink Floyd actually in the in the last one. Paul Thompson says on the subject of Pink Floyd and their investments. Nick Mason is doing okay in 1977. This is really interesting. He spent thirty-five grand of his royalties on a nineteen sixty-two Ferrari two hundred and fifty GTO, which I imagine would have been considered insane by most people at the time. He still and what owns it. Would it be worth now? Well, according to Paul Thompson, thirty million pounds. <laughs> <laughs> oh so, Lord. That, that's a, we were pro- we probably seen that car, Mark, because we went to um.
1: We went to his daughter's we wedding.
0: We went to Nate Mason's daughter's wedding. Um, oh, that was fantastic. And outside it? the house, they had all these
1: fabulous cars on the gravel drive. And fabulous which cars. Which kind of meant, of meant that, very a, lo- little to us. Yeah. And an old biplane kind of buzzed the church, do you remember? With streamers. Yes. Off the, uh, all the uh, yeah. wings. That was yeah. absolutely incredible. He's done all right. Cause so not only f- is he indulged in his great, uh, great love, which is old vintage cars, but he's formed a very, very successful company where he rents them out for use in films. So uh, I suppose you know, he would. He's he's doing fine, isn't he? God bless him. And
0: Barry Kelly, further to the Roger Waters thing, he says, I saw one of those poorly attended radio chaos shows in '97 and, uh, and there weren't a lot of people there. But for later tours, Roger Waters has built up his name recognition enormously, mostly by performing The Wall in Arenas and putting his own name in that scrawly Pink Floyd font. I didn't know that. That was like a, a scrawly Pink Floyd font, invented by Gerald Scarf, wasn't it?
1: I think, I think it, it was. was. It was. Can I mention so, Giles Fraser, who wrote in? Did you see his fantastic oh, uh, email about his? What he called his gigiog? Oh yes, Giles Fraser, yes. one of our listeners. Yeah, he said um, he'd written. He made a record of every single gig he'd ever been to, and. Uh, uh, since 1977, I think. The first one he went to was Golden Earring in 1977 at the Rainbow. And he's put a little comment uh, by each one. And also it records the person he went with, mostly a bloke called Egg. And then it changes later to, <laughs> I think, a wife, and eventually, I think, children. But I thought it was just so funny, his comments. One of one of these gigs, actually, I went to myself, Thin Lizzy at the House with Odin in 1978. I remember that really well. He says, one of the best. But some of the comments are brilliant. Noel Gallagher in 2018, terrible. All his songs sound the same. Tears for Fears in 2019. His, his only comment was, they hate each other. <laughs> Adele, such swearing. And uh, Costello uh, had his spinning wheel. I like him less now. <laughs> I thought that was pretty brilliant. But isn't that great to have kept a record of I'm
0: looking at one where he went, to see, he went to see Orange Juice at Oxford Scamps. Scamps oh, right. was obviously a popular venue. And his comment is quite drugged up. Now, I don't know if that applied to is that orange him juice. Or, a, or, or, is
1: that, or, or yeah. him.
0: Him and egg. <laughs> him and egg. Hey, It's
1: all egg. Be him yeah. and egg. Yeah.
0: yeah. I've also got to mention this. We've had something from John Med, and it's quite interesting. It's linked to a very good American podcast, which answers kind of <laughs> listeners' <laughs> queries. So, you know, listeners set it quests to find things. And this is just quite interesting because it's called The Case of the Missing Hit. I'll put a link to this on the show notes. Um, Because it all starts with a guy who, who heard a record 20 years ago and it just won't leave his mind. And he can't find out what it is, you know, which you would have thought would be perfectly possible nowadays. But, no, he's tried absolutely well, every way, and he can't think what it is. Well, he can remember bits of the lyric
1: and everything.
0: (laughs) Yes, he he can sing whole bits of it and so forth. It was some kind of regional hit. But the reason I mention it, you know, is people can go away and and listen to it. You know, it's, it's very good. But, you know, that used to be a kind of fact of life, didn't it? Being able to half remember records that you couldn't fully recalled because you didn't have the tools to go and find them. You know, when I used to work in a record shop in the mid-70s... Oh, people would always come in and start humming t- songs Yeah, common, you, they? yeah. they? Quite, come quite in common t- for people to come in, you know, say... What's the song that goes like line, this? Yeah, goes like this, or I'll just tell you one line of it or whatever. And very often you could get it because it, it was usually quite a small number of uh, of tunes that you could do that about, you know. But um, But nowadays, it's increasingly... <laughs> You know, you can find out anything whether you use a tool like Shazam or you you just Google the words, or you go and ask a mate, or you going and throw it open to social media or whatever. You find yeah. out, and it just makes me, it just makes me ponder on the truth of what Tom Waits said recently. He said, uh, "We used to wonder. I miss the wondering." You know, it was it's kind so of true. part of human be experience. That, yeah. <laughs> everything, absolutely everything, yeah. can be answered. You know, and so half the it's fun of music was true. stuff you didn't really hear. You know, you were vaguely aware it was there, and you were you would never, but you would never come across it. You know, until you eventually went to somebody's house who had a copy or whatever. Whereas anything nowadays, if you have the curiosity about it, you can you can pull it towards you very very easily
1: are doing. the internet has destroyed the idea now that you can you can appear as a kind of, a, as a sort of fictional figure. You know, there would be no Lady Gaga, there would be no David Bowie, there would be no Iggy Pop. I think if they'd if they been launched in the days of the internet, you could find out that they weren't these these fabulous creatures they claim to be. They were actually quite conventional people from quite conventional backgrounds. You know, Iggy Pop, kind of middle-class uh, university student, wasn't he? You know, who'd, yeah. uh, who'd won uh, uh, all sorts of uh, academic awards at college. And, um, you know, you, you would have... He it, it, it wasn't necessarily the kind of, uh, the uh, you know, bare-chested lunatic throwing himself off the stage landing on a table full of glasses, you know.
2: This is Word, podcasting for the lockdown. We're not going on a summer holiday.
1: I've been digging around and looking at some old magazines and stuff I've got in the, in the attic, and what I found, which is amazing, is actually an edition of Word Magazine, which came out in January two thousand and four. Really interesting because uh, do you remember this? We were we were obsessed with the arrival of the iPod, and the iPod, iPod had completely changed the way that everybody listened to music. You know, at the time, was can this be the case that you know the the album is no longer really going to exist and people won't listen to just collections of songs like that. They'll just pick the song they want and listen in kind of compilation form. And we did this little interview, and it's really interesting. There's a guy called Bill Flanagan, who's an old mate of ours, who was the um, musical director of of, uh, of MTV and VH1 in America, wasn't he? And uh, he says his prediction is the single song was the dominant unit in music sales, sheet music as well as records, from the beginning of the industry until well into the 60s. It will be the case again. And Nick Hornby, we talk about record shops, says, No, he says, I expect record shops will disappear very soon. There may be a niche for smaller shops. And Neil Tennant, uh, the Petrol Boys, says they'll only survive if they learn the current marketing mantra, which is shopping is theatre, and provide an experience that makes you want to go into a record shop. I think that's true. Yeah, Peter Gables predicts that digital distribution and artist subscription sites will be the way people get records out of music out to people, and they won't need record labels anymore. Moby talks about live performances as the established musicians will play bigger and bigger shows with more and more corporate sponsorship and higher ticket prices. And the, the majority of smaller art, artists will genuinely struggle to get people's attention. Oh, it was really interesting. And, you know, there we were looking at that and thinking, will that really be the case? Is, is the world really going to change that much? And how right they all were. But there's a little piece that I found uh, at the front, which I thought was so funny. And it was about, uh, written, by, I think, by Andrew Harrison. It was about the film Kill Bill. And it says, after Kill Bill, what other snappily titled Roaring Rampages of Revenge are in the pipeline? And he talks about Hurt Bert. A vengeful ex-wife tracks down Burt Reynolds and gives him a Chinese burn. (laughs) Stab Rab. A vengeful ex-wife tracks down lovable Scots alcoholic Rab C Nesbitt and sorts him out Glasgow-style. Kick Mick. A vengeful ex-wife, Jerry Hall, tracks down Sir Mick Jagger and puts her Manolo Blahnik's in a place that will prevent future philandering. Trash Slash. A vengeful ex-wife tracks down the former Guns N' Roses guitarist and administers a consensual (laughs) whipping. (laughs) Mame the dame. Angie Bowie goes after her ex-husband with garden shears. You've got to admit that's good, isn't it? (laughs) Very funny. I recommend Word magazine. That's got press
0: day written all over it, hasn't
1: it? It has got press. That's that, got. That's, that's, there's a hole to fill. There's a little hole to fill. Oh, there's a little hole quick. to fill. Of oh, God's <laughs> sake! Yeah, I know. Isn't
0: It's the kind of thing that if you had it sitting around, it's quite interesting in, in magazines. If you had an idea like that sitting around for a week, people would go off it. Whereas yeah. if they do it in the spur, on the spur of the moment, just get it out there, they just think, "When you oh, really fine. need
1: it, when you yeah, see when it's value." Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. I've got in front of me Have
1: you found any old ones?
0: I've got in front of me, I just reached down to, to my right and, and pulled out uh March 1994 issue of Mojo with Frank Zappa on the cover
1: Oh, um, the fourth issue I
0: remember this very well Yeah, and uh, and I was reminded of, a, of a, a regular feature in the early days that I think got knocked on the head and um I think it might have be been my idea, actually, early on. And it was called Archaeology. And it was just basically oh, yeah, yeah. clippings from old music papers. Old music kind papers, of, that's right. It was kind of what we're doing right now. What we're doing right now. And, what, yeah. and we ran this in in the first few issues of Mojo. There were a couple of spreads devoted to particular acts. And uh, it um, it got knocked on the head because... Uh, disapproving noises came from the legal departments of other publishers, uh, you know, because we were taking clippings from. We were taking stuff the NME, from we me, old Melody Makers and Enemy and stuff. Oh, right. I mean, they were just kind of, they were just ragouts, you know, and uh, you couldn't really get cross about it, but uh, you know, and it's just it made. I'm looking at one now, and it's all about the Human <laughs> League. So it's got it's got things like you know uh, items about the Human League from Paula's People which was a, a column in the Daily Express in 1981. It's, of course, By got 48. the famous Harry North cartoon that we commissioned for the uh, for smash hits in, in there. And it's I was just thinking, what a shame it is that all this material is largely inaccessible nowadays because, I mean, the publishers... I mean, most of these papers... I talk about the music papers, they've closed... And uh, in most cases, you know, the kind of rights of of those titles have been sold on to other publishers who who probably don't have any interest in them at all. And, uh, you know, readers and listeners are probably wondering why they can't access all these old things because wouldn't you love to be able to go through an old copy of The Enemy from 1982 or 1972 or whenever whenever is your favourite time? Well, you know... There have been people in the industry who have thought for years, yes, it would be really nice to be able to do that. But every time anybody comes up with a, a plan to do something about it, they come up against the same problem, which is if somebody's going to claim their copyright on their one little picture down in the bottom right of that you know, reproduction of this feature about. Tim Buckley or whatever, it's simply not going to be worth the trouble. It's not going to be and worth so, the
1: trouble to go out and scan it,
0: exactly. No, and so, um, and so, you know, I think I, I'm told IPC, who I know more, you know, that they, they actually digitised a load of this stuff about 15 years ago with a view to it coming out, and then it was but it was just been knocked on it. their head. I haven't been able to do do anything with it, and I can't help but thinking it's going to happen at some point. And I would just like to say, I would just like to say in public, as somebody who's written my, who's scribbled my share for all these titles over the years, if anybody who wants to just put that stuff out. You've got my blessing to do it. I'm not <laughs> exactly. going to come looking for you for fourpence to be paid for some old Graham Parker review in 1977. No. Get it out there for goodness' sake! You know what I mean? This is just absolutely ridiculous because these are no, well, we were talking we were talking to Mark Lewison about this when we did the "Word in Your Attic" video uh, thing, which you can find on our on uh, on our um. Word in Your Ear section of YouTube, talking to Mark Lewison about researching his Beatles books. And what Mark does is he goes through every single music paper, doesn't he, for the years he's covering. Every edition of every one. And they are, and as he says, they're a fantastic,
1: unbelievable yeah, I don't resource. know how he doesn't get distracted, because he was telling us telling that he's been going oh, through copies of Disc and Music Echo. I mean, you go off, and, and, and his next instalment of, of his, his Beatles trilogy, which I cannot wait for, nor can anyone else, is going to contain all sorts of stuff about the, the Beatles' rival bands, because, of course, that's part of the story. But also, when you're reading those, those music papers, you get this incredible information about the Stones and the Kinks and everybody, which you just want to use, you know. But, I mean, can you imagine, I'd just go off and look at all the small ads and, you know, the this is it. all the reviews, this is it. the news stories. I mean, you'd, just, you'd be so distracted. I don't know how he
0: gets any work uh, done. And there's such riches, you know, but nobody is going to make money out of it. It's just not going to happen, you know. There isn't, there isn't enough from either you could derive from it for, uh, for it to be divided up between the millions of people who contributed to those things. But it doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. In some way, it's no. It's a shame. I I think the government should step in. The government should step in. The British (laughs) Library should step (laughs) in. So, for God's sake, quit mucking around. You know, this stuff is absolute gold dust. You know, get it It out there. And there's loads of there's loads of people who'd really like that. So that's my rant for for yesterday's papers. This is a junction in the word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Now I. I've, um, I've been having difficulty over the last uh, month or so, like many people, concentrating on things, although I've started to read books properly again. I can't be doing with the television. I can't watch the television at all. Can't listen to the news, presumably. <laughs> Not really. But this week I found myself listening to the same record three times in a row. Which I don't think I've done. I can't remember when I last did that. And do you know what that record was? You mentioned this to me. Is it We Tam or is it The Big Huge? It's by The Incredible String Band anyway, isn't it? It's We Tam by The Incredible String Band. And, uh, and this morning before we started doing this, I listened to The 5,000 Spirits or The Layers of the Onion, uh, the first record by The Incredible String Band as a duo. Second
1: record. Oh, it's a duo, yeah. First, first of the duo. Oh, I think and... you'll find... Look at me, buddy. Oh, I think you'll find, Mr Hepworth, <laughs> much as your uh, pop and rock information is normally 100% correct and authentic... <laughs> it's,
2: it's
0: anyway, no, I was just trying to head off any of...
1: kind of... funny complaints there. Yeah, go on.
0: <laughs> and, uh, and I just find it's balm for my troubled soul, you know. It I, is balm kn- for troubled kn- soul. I was never the world's biggest incredible string band fan. I always liked them. You know, everybody liked them. But uh, I was never kind of front rank by any means. But it's one of those things that just... And isn't it one of the magical things about music? That it has its moment. It always has its moment. And, you know, that's those records are more than 50 years old, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I think they are. Yes, they are. And they sound just absolutely <laughs> but magical. It's, man. its
1: moment is, is, some, is something to do with the fact that we have time and the patience to go back and listen to it because I, I think you know with this incredible string band you know who I absolutely loved actually that they're one of those very very they un- those unique groups that were much like Steely Dan actually that nobody before them sounded anything like that and I don't think anybody after them sounded anything like them they're just no, completely they on their own and there's something absolutely liberating they came at a time. When record companies had the budget and had the enthusiasm to think that anything was worth trying, this really eccentric and extraordinary music, and the public had the appetite and the patience and the time to listen to that stuff, which really needed some listening to to understand and absorb, you know. And if you look at it musically, Mike Heron was the, was the, the two of them, it was, it was, uh, it was a kind of R&B and electric guitar, a, a sort of blues player, and Robin Williamson, kind of a folky... And they've absorbed such an incredible amount of music. There's folk music, there's blues, there's murder ballads, there's medieval folk song, music hall, and jigs and reels and Irish songs and world music. There's a song called um, A Very Cellular Song, which you'll know, which has a, a, a Bahamian spiritual in the middle of it. Good night. There's the Minotaurs song, which is a passage of Gilbert and Sullivan. There's Ain't Got No Home, which is uh, based on a hymn by the Carter family. You know, this Reverend Gary Davis' Log Cabin Home in the Sky, which is based on an old Woody Guthrie song. It's fantastic. And the words, you know, all that stuff, it's so far reaching and imaginative. A. A. Milne and uh, William Blake, Lewis Carroll, uh, bits of James Joyce influenced songs like. Uh, Koei O'Addy there, you know, he looks at the world from the view of the, of the child at the beginning, and Job's Tears quotes an old song sung by Groucho Marx in Animal Crackers. Hello, I Must Be Going. I mean, I think all that stuff is so liberating because it's so, it's so, it's just so extraordinary and original. And the songs, they did songs that were, you know, in two and a half minute songs in four different movements. You know, songs that were... T- 12 minutes long i think it's amazing and the and the and the, and the, 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 the instruments too bowed gimbri, finger cymbals hammered dulcimer harpsichords sitars flutes i mean it's just there's nothing like it. and somehow it works right now doesn't it it just works you know we got the time to and it's 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 the ultimate excla- ultimate escape the word
0: podcast one of the few things you really need in life it's coming up for 50 years since the release of what people still say is the greatest live rock and roll record which is of course I've got a copy in front of me um it's it's uh, in uh, in a kind of would be bootleg cover as was very fashionable at the time and it's got a stamp on the inside of this this cover that says pop in 20 high road south woodford East eighteen. It's even got the phone number in there. Brilliant. And, and alongside the record, it's got a lead of kind of early contracts and and flyers and all sorts of stuff pertaining to the Who, because it is, of course, the Who's live at Leeds, which came out fifty came years out ago. May fifty
1: years ago. That's right. Yeah.
0: Almost fifty years ago.
1: Fantastic. And then.
0: Do you do you concur with the widely held view, Mister Ellen? He says, They're "All right, put his hands people. on his lapels."
1: <laughs> that right is the greatest people. live recording. But there's um, well, there's you, you, you uncovered all sorts of uh, interesting uh, pop facts about it, because you? you know one of which is that is that about the audience that there is the most explosive live show imaginable. And pictures now reveal that the audience were sitting down.
0: <laughs> they Which were is, sitting down.
1: It looks like less
0: like a rock and roll gig than like a seminar is what it looks like. It took place, in, it, it, as all gigs at Leeds University took place in those days, in the refectory. Um, so it was kind of standard parquet-floored, you know, municipal academic architecture. At low stage and uh, you know people it, it this it certainly if they were near the stage they sat down in order to let the people f- further back be able to see over them and it's astonishing to look at these pictures because anything less kind of um you know redolent of rock and roll abandon would be hard to hard to imagine you know and they it's it's even borne out by the recording because the interesting thing about the recording is that it's brilliant of the band, but it has no sense of the acoustics of the room. You know, nowadays you listen to a live recording and, and they're effectively recreations in the studio of the live experience, you know, so they, they yeah. put in as much atmos as they possibly can. You know, they want to hear the audience. They want to hear the whooping and the screaming and so forth. Yeah, yeah. On live Leeds, you don't hear any of that at all. There's no interjections. There's nobody nobody in the audience shouting whipping
1: posts or anything Delicious. like that. You know. And when they've playing... No, when you think playing... of Bangladesh, the Bangladesh album, which came out what, the next year or something, you think you know, I'd like to bring on a friend of us all, Mr. Bob Dylan. You know, that noise, that absolute wall of sound that's so thrilling to listen to. But it was not
0: like well, at all, was it? No, well, because that's that's what you got when they made films. That's what happened on the soundtrack of Woodstock, because film editors made a lot of the of the sound of the audience, whereas yeah. musical, you know, producers didn't. They kind of they naturally wanted to su- suppress the sound of the audience, if anything, and so. You get the who doing these incredible versions of shaking it all over and substitute and my generation and all these things and at the end of them you just get this distant <laughs> ripple of kind of you know it's as if somebody's just uh, you know just uh, you put a put a ball through the through the covers for four at, at Headingley or something like <laughs> that you know it, polite it applause. Doesn't, it doesn't that, and it's really interesting if you look at these pictures of this audience and you realize that this was before the dawn of the whoop, you know. The whoop is now the kind of the most the most omnipresent sound in every public gathering, isn't it? It's That's, the right. Kind of, Whoo! That's right. I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. Me. I'm here. I'm more excited than anybody else, you know. I'm and here, and I want was, to. Be, I want to appear on the live album. <laughs> and it was completely unknown back in the days of you know when the who made that record. And it's amazing. You look at the, We look at the picture yesterday, were not we? That um, there appears to be no lighting rig or anything like that. You it's know, the only lighting digit. is is a kind of. You know, some 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 of the lighting in the room has been moved to kind of point at the
1: backdrop.
0: Of, the backdrop just they're, they're, appears
1: to be a sort of sheet, doesn't it? Just you know, it does on the wall. It does. And there's Big the, Tanzan in mid-air in his white boiler ah, suit, you know, giving it and a thousand percent,
0: playing for their lives, you know. But it, it's really interesting because i have done a lot of reading about this recently. That um you know, the, the Who. Who really got ahead of everybody at the time in, in terms of live performance? Because they'd arrived in America later than the other British acts. And uh, and so they ended up playing live at a, in America at a time when when their big kind of British competitors, the Beatles, had retired. And the Rolling Stones were kind of dealing with Brian Jones and, and all that stuff and drug busts and so forth, whereas the Who were out there learning how to play, and learning how to play in a really in a really different way in a different context. And they and Pete Townsend talked about this a lot. He says that the Who learned how to play in what he called the electric ballroom, and the electric ballroom was best exemplified by the Fillmore's East and West, which were the two theatres run by Bill Graham. And Bill Graham was a guy who'd come out of kind of fringe theatre, alternative theatre. He was the theatre person, really, and had got into promoting rock and roll gigs. And Bill Graham, like most promoters, he wanted to make money. Of course he wanted to make money. But he also, to be fair to Bill Graham, he wanted to, people to have a good night. He wanted to be a special show, and so yeah, at the Fillmore, you could be guaranteed that the sound would be good, the lighting would be good, and the ambience would be good, and the audience would be sympathetic. Which didn't apply to most gigs, you know. Most gigs were like, in, in, and in Britain, you didn't have anything like that. In Britain, you had the universities, and the universities were never never felt like rock and roll gigs, really, you know, because they were. They were halls with parquet floors, you know, where people had been yeah. doing their finals the day before. You, know. you, you couldn't change their ambience in that way, whereas the
1: film, but also the Who was, had got the right- had that. And they got the right amount of equipment, hadn't they? Because Cream are the ones who really suffered because Cream cause, you know who were just, just disbanded by then, didn't they? But they were they were touring these bigger and bigger halls, but with tiny, tiny amounts of equipment. The kind of the kind of amount of the tiny little lamps and stuff that they used to use pretty much in their in their in their, in their club shows, and so it was distorted and it just didn't work. And you know, when they, you they... went to the
0: film when you went to the Fillmore, the sound would be good, the lighting would yeah. be really good. Also, the interesting thing about the Fillmores is they're all quite small. They were official capacity, 800 people, which is really small. You know, that's, that's less yep. than a third of the size of the of whatever we call the Hammersmith Odeon nowadays. Um, and, you know, he would pack in more people than were supposed to be there, but there was, still, there was still 800 or so. And so the audience was really engaged and really listening in a way that hadn't been happening before. Because when The Who had first gone to America, they'd been doing these, like, Murray the K shows in, in in New York where they were on with a bill of, like, 20 people and they would literally, they would do two songs. They would do two songs five <laughs> times a day. The Who, the Who did That's this. bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> they played my generation five times a day. And most of most of the performance was taken up with Destroying the Drum Kit. And then they just have to go behind the cut and put it back
1: together again. And then repair the it. Show,
0: for <laughs> yeah. the next show, you know, an hour later, they'd have to do the same thing all over again. Whereas you, you move that to, you know, the Boston Tea Party or the Fillmore's and you've got a very different kind of show. And that's the show that is recorded... On live at Leeds you know they ended up they ended up doing it in Leeds because they were looking for a way to follow up Tommy that was just more you know it was more in keeping with the kind of thing that they did and so they decided to record two shows they recorded Leeds and the following night in Hull um you know, so two Yorkshire universities and uh, recorded pretty much the same show and the one that came out best uh was live at Leeds and it's it's just remarkable you can go if you go and look on the Wikipedia page. Actually, you can see there is a photograph of the stage taken last year. <laughs> that's right. And you, and you look at this thing, you think, I cannot believe, you cannot I did believe those th- feet?
1: That's <laughs> right. That, that, happen that actually there. happened here. I know. <laughs> it's the least rock and mention, roll place you've ever seen. Yeah, can I mention my old pal Chris McCord? It's a really interesting story. I mean, anyone who's got live at Leeds knows, famously, because there's no photograph on the cover. It's that kind of fake bootleg look. And uh, I, I've i got a mate who lives round the corner, and uh, Chris McCourt, and we were having supper with him. Oh, I must have been about 20 years ago when I was at Mojo. And he said he used to take some photographs in the old days. And I said, what sort of things do you do? He said, well, I, I did the concert of live at Leeds. And I said, but there was no picture on the... No, there were no photographs of it. And he told me the story, which is that the Who at the time, he'd heard through someone who was um, did artwork for for the band, that they were looking for a photographer to cover to cover these two concerts, and that they didn't want to, deliberately didn't want to get a professional photographer. It was a kind of hippie thing, really commendable, actually. They wanted to get some, maybe some kind of, a school kid can do the pictures. You know, it was a kind of philanthropic move on their part. And he took his portfolio in, and they gave him the job, and they said, we'll give you 50 quid, plus expenses, to cover these shows. And he went up there, and he, they said, we only want colour, And he wasn't allowed to use flash, which is the problem. So he couldn't get the exposures right. Also, he wasn't that experienced, but he couldn't get the exposures right. He took a load of photographs. He took some black and white himself, sent them off, never heard back from them. He had his 50 quid. He never heard back. And when when the record came out, his picture wasn't on it. Because, you know, you didn't follow up and say, well, what happened? You know, he was just a bit overawed (laughs) that they'd given him the gig in the first place. You know, that Kit Lambert had employed him, who was the manager. And then uh, he went down to his basement and got out some negatives and he had the pictures from, the, from Live from As you remember, I got these, I said, print them up and we'll run this piece in Mojo, which we did in about 1994. And, of course, The Who were absolutely thrilled. They were just about to release this as a box set, got in touch with them. Reproduced the pictures, um, put them in there as an additional extra. And he's, um, you know, he's had little exhibitions of them ever since. But it's not an extraordinary story? That they hired <laughs> they hired someone who was virtually a 17-year-old schoolboy with virtually no experience of photography to take the pictures. And then in the end didn't use any. Bizarre. This is a Word Lockdown special. Call it Herd Immunity.
0: Any other business? We've been busy, haven't we, Mark? We've been busy and Alex Magic Alex
1: Gold has been busy in the background as well. Yeah with well, we, the, the the website has been spruced up and given a bit of a spring clean. We've, yeah, done, so loads, going, we've done lots more of our Word in, in Your Attic recordings, thoroughly recommended and going down very well. If you haven't seen the Word in Your Attics,
0: go to go on YouTube, just look up Word in Your Ear uh, and you should see all that stuff that we've done there. although we we'll put up we'll put a link under underneath this as well. And uh, We've we've also put a toe in the water of of a regular quiz, haven't we, Mark? We tried that last Saturday with our with Saturday. our Patreon supporters, Saturday. and we'll do another one. Another one, one this upcoming. Saturday. Yeah, it was a lot of and fun. Definitely. It's hilarious. And it, and if you you know if you don't feel that you want to compete, but you'd like to look, you can still. You're very free to do that. There are seats at the back available for non-participants. <laughs> Not <laughs> a problem at all. And so you know. Usual thing, you know, please like, please favorite, please subscribe. All these things make, you know, it's just a couple of clicks and it makes a lot of difference to us. Uh, And also we'll put the link here as to to how you can become one of our Patreons. Who are increasingly legion, aren't they, Mark? They're growing,
1: growing apace, and we're delighted are, to see them. They are, and we're immensely indebted to them, and we feel we should, and we do, in fact, every time mention them by name. The and, new uh, ones, yeah, the
0: new ones. So, shall we start running down the roll of honour for our new
1: patrons this week? Can we start, Mark? Would you like to yeah, go we first? We shall, we shall. And let, let joy be once again unconfined for the great Kevin Walsh.
0: And let the sky be black with hats to recognise the contributions of Doug Grant. <laughs> Doubles
1: all round, people, it's Colin Cunningham. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we wouldn't be where we are today without Andrew Newberry.
1: Thumbs will remain permanently aloft at the mere mention of the armchair adventurers. <laughs>
0: Uh, uh, and who who could forget the contribution of Jonathan
1: Whitney? And putting a spring in our step, it's the inimitable Paul Thompson. Zebra oh. Kid, Horace Bachelor, and Ian Stewart. <laughs> Corky O'Reilly, it's Dave Bowler! <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, One of our our most valued patrons, Tim Ward. And uh, Lord Lover Duck, it's Philippa Lang. Yes. His name goes up in lights, Gavin Adam. (laughs) The generously cash-dispensing James Morris. (laughs) You must be made of money, Grant Hobson. (laughs) The one, the only, the sensational Tim Rolls and never far
1: away Alex Calder. Please welcome and uh, and uh, greet with deafening applause the sensational Keith Blackall and
0: once more the act you've known for all these years Daniel Noble.
1: <laughs> Your pal our pal. In fact, indeed, my old pal, genuinely, Elise Hibbert. God bless you, madam. That just goes to show that Mark Allen
0: doesn't read these lists until he reads them out. Mike <laughs> Jardine.
1: <laughs> Raising, once again, the sum of human happiness, Gordon Roberts. Popping
0: champagne corks for Colin.
1: Colin with no other
0: name, just Colin, isn't it? Just yeah, straight yeah. Colin.
1: Yeah. All the way from
0: Memphis, Tennessee, possibly Mark Poole. The godfather of soul, Ivan Moran. Big, mine a large one, Paul Goffin. The hardest working man in show business, Peter Stevenson. Intense and deafening applause, please, for David Miles. And no less for Andrew Boland. Sky
1: black with chapeau. Once again, it's Michael Luce. <laughs> <laughs> We've had the we black even, with Chapeau, we haven't done that we? We have. Uh, but don't worry, don't worry.
0: We're immensely grateful for the contributions of Giles Fraser. We'd be lost without Robert Dunstan. And where would we be without Andrew? Thank you very much to all of them.
1: We very much appreciate their Enormously appreciate it. God bless you. Thank you, people. This podcast was brought to you by The Word.
0: Planning for your next trip?